This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. It is a great privilege to have with us today Dr. Martin Kniber. Dr. Kniber is the Chief of the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at the Beatrix Children's Hospital, University Medical Center in Groningen, the Netherlands. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to be on this podium. Thank you. Martin, when you and I last spoke, it was in November of 2021. And at that time, you took us through, really, as you had written in a recent editorial at that time, the physiology of mechanical ventilation and gave us your insights. In the intervening time, as you know, in February of 2023, in the journal Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, Kamani and Associates published the executive summary of the second international guidelines for the diagnosis and management of pediatric acute respiratory distress syndrome, or what is widely known as the PALIC-2 guidelines. And we thought it would be very interesting to have you back and talk with you about how you implement the PALIC-2 guidelines in your daily practice at your ICU at the Beatrix Children's Hospital in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we could begin with how you think about the use of PEEP. And as you know, in the guidelines, they cite really one of the seminal studies in pediatric critical care on PEEP. And that, again, was by Robbie Kamani and published in the Blue Journal in 2018, where Robbie and colleagues demonstrated that a PEEP lower than the ARDS network protocol is associated with higher pediatric mortality. And that was really one of the guiding studies, I think, probably for the new recommendations. And as you know, in the PALIP-2 guidelines, published again in February 2023 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, the PALIP-2 guidelines recommend that PEEP levels should be typically maintained at or above the lower PEEP higher FiO2 table from the ARDS network protocol. And I'm wondering, in your practice, how do you think about the utilization of PEEP in pediatric acute lung injury? Yeah, the issue of PEEP, it's a really fascinating issue and subject to heavy scientific debate, not only among us in the pediatric critical care community, but also in the adult critical care community. I mean, even the adults still don't know what the best way to set PEEP is. And we learned from this data from Robbie Kamania, there was a, a, a two-center study from CHLA and from CHOP that being off the grid was associated with higher mortality. And then in the party study, which followed the publication of the first PELIC guidelines, where it was examined, okay, how well, uh, how often does parts occur according to our new guidelines and what are people doing in terms of ventilating, ventilator management, and in terms of ancillary treatment, the same observation was made. So the more off the grid you were, the patient was the higher the likelihood of higher mortality. If we go back a little bit to the PEEP FR2 grid, it's a grid that was developed by the adults, by the ARDS network group, as you rightfully say. And as far as I can remember, it's not a really validated or grid or based on any physiology. I think it's a grid that people sitting around the table came up with. So the question is, how valid is this grid in relation to physiology, in, in relation to, to lung mechanics? Having said that, the data that we have so far, because we don't have randomized control trials regarding people like the adults, albeit that most of the adult trials didn't show any benefit of using higher PEEP. And for example, the ART trial, 
where higher peep setting according to the grid in combination with lung recruitment maneuvers resulted in adverse outcome in those subjects. The pediatric data that we have so far is the data from Robbie Kamani and his group and from the party study. And the, the nice thing about the PELIC recommendations, the, the updated version is that they are really based on what data do we have? How can we give a little bit more scientific rigor to our recommendations and not just expert opinion, Delphi consensus, whatever. So this is the best data that we have out there. It was heavily debated among the group because there is a global difference in interpretation of the grid. And the grid is, is seen as, as often used in, in North America and Canada and in other parts of the world, it's, it's less used. Some people say you may use esophageal pressure manometry, for example, to, to titrate your level of PEEP, but in adults, it hasn't shown to confer an outcome benefit. So in the end, what we came up in the PELIC with, and I think this is the approach that we do in our unit as well, is to use the grid as a starting point. So not necessarily saying, okay, this is the way you should go. But when a patient comes in and you identify parts and you diagnose parts, and after four hours, you stratify parts based on is it mild, moderate, or is it severe, use the grid as a starting point for setting the PEEP, and then further titrate PEEP, finding the balance between oxygenation and hemodynamics. And that titrating is, I think, really important because not all lung diseases are recruitable, so not all patients respond very well to, to increasing PEEP. So what we do in our unit is we set the level of PEEP, we try to get a little bit according to the grid, and then we're going to titrate it, looking at compliance, looking at dead space, looking at oxygenation metrics, hemodynamics, and then trying to find that sweet spot of the PEEP setting. And I think that's taking the PELIC recommendations into account, the recommendation and the tools that we have at the bedside available now, at least for now, probably the best way to go. So compliance, measurement, oxygenation, hemodynamics, titrate level of PEEP. And if, for example, is a patient in a pressure-controlled mode of ventilation and with increasing PEEP, compliance improves, tidal volume improves, then you know this patient is a responder and that patient benefits from higher PEEP. If compliance doesn't improve and tidal volume doesn't increase, you know this patient is, is a non-responder and doesn't benefit from higher levels of PEEP and probably has more negative effects from higher levels of PEEP. I think that's a little bit the approach, taking the starting point of the grid and then titrate. And that's the, the message that the PELIC group is, is, is sending out. And if I could, for our listeners, do you pretty much stick to the ARSNET protocol grid, lower PEEP, higher table? And the anchoring points to remind our listeners are at 40% FiO2, the ARSNET network table recommends the PEEP of 6 to 8, and at 60% FiO2 recommends a PEEP of 10, and at 100% FiO2 recommends a PEEP of 18 to 24. Is your practice at Beatrix Hospital in the Netherlands pretty close to those anchoring points on the table? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think... And, and for, for children younger than one year of age, we use a little lower level of high PEEP in the upper range with FI2 of 1.0, it's about 16 to 18, but, but that's our starting point. And then further on, we titrate. So we look, okay, the patient is on 0.6, the table recommends this level of PEEP, and that's where, that's where we start. Martin, thank you for that. And now, could I turn to another topic to ask how you implement this in your practice at the Beatrix Hospital in the Netherlands, and that is the concept of driving pressure. And as you know, this receives a lot of attention in the literature, but putting it into practice is often less discussed. And to remind our listeners, the driving pressure, the delta P, is the plateau pressure minus the PEEP, or it's really it's the tidal volume divided by the respiratory system compliance. And guidelines, again, refer to one of the seminal studies on driving pressure, which was Amato and colleagues in the adult literature reported in the New England Journal in 2015 entitled Driving Pressure and Survival in the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, 
And in this study, again, in adults with ARDS, they found that driving pressure was more influential on mortality than any other variable of mechanical ventilation. And in the PALAC-2 guidelines, they make this clinical recommendation. We suggest limiting driving pressure to 15 centimeters of water as measured under static conditions for patients with PARDS. And they further state that the tidal volumes should be reduced below 6 ml per kilo if necessary in order to stay within that driving pressure limit. And indeed, the tidal volumes, according to the PALAC-2 recommendations, can be decreased to as low as 4 ml per kilo used with caution if necessary to stay within the recommended driving pressure of 15 centimeters of water or less. And so my first question is, do you measure driving pressure frequently in your management? And if so, how do you use it to guide your management? And do you ascribe to the recommendation of the PALAC-2 guidelines of a driving pressure of 15 centimeters of water or less? Yeah, I think driving pressure is really the hot topic nowadays. As you said, mentioned, it comes from the Amato study. And that threshold of 15 centimeters of water comes out of his study. So this is a pooled analysis of, of data from adults uh, randomized to tidal volume trials uh, with ARDS. And, and from this, this sophisticated statistical analysis, this threshold value became apparent. The recommendation is in the PALIC 2 guidelines because we were discussing at some point, traditionally we're talking about volume trauma, large tidal volume, barotrauma, high pressure, but we are moving over the past decades more towards an integration and talk about lung stress and lung strain. Uh, and stress is the, the transpulmonary pressure and lung strain is the change in volume over its resting volume, which would be in our case, tidal volume over the amount of inflatable lung volume. And stress and strain are, are very much linked. So it's not necessarily anymore now targeting a specific tidal volume. I think we've learned that, that there is no holy grail in tidal volume, but the tidal volume is variable depending on the disease severity. And this is where driving pressure really fits in because driving pressure from the original concept, as you said, tidal volume normalized to lung compliance. So the sicker the lung would be, the lower the lung compliance would be, the lower the allowable tidal volume should be. And you can calculate this at, at, at the bedside, but the number from driving pressure helps you a little bit in titrating the, the individual tidal volume in, in your patient. In PEATS, we don't have a sophisticated analysis like Amato has done, just because we don't have randomized control trials regarding tidal volume. We have observational data from our group, amongst others, where we measured driving pressure under static conditions in a lot of children, about 300 children. And we found a similar threshold of about 15 centimeters of water associated with ventilator-free days. There are some other studies where they calculated driving pressure by the peak inspiratory pressure minus PEEP, but then you have the resistive component of your ventilation playing a role, and then you don't get a true estimate of the driving pressure. So it's really important to always measure it under, under static conditions. So with these AMATA data and our findings from our observational study, um, we do look at the driving pressure in our patients. We've instructed the nursing team, we've instructed the whole bedside team of doing a manual inspiratory hold on the ventilator because we mainly use pressure-controlled ventilation. So you press the button, the ventilator does an inspiratory hold, and then you can get an idea of what the plateau pressure is. Either it's displayed numerically on your ventilator, or you can look it on the float, on the pressure timescaler, so that you can calculate the difference between the plateau pressure and, and the PEEP. 
and we use it to say, okay, this patient is doing pretty pretty okay, has a tidal volume of seven ml per kg, ideal body weight, but the driving pressure is below 15, so we're happy with seven. This patient has very bad lungs. We give a tidal volume of six, but the driving pressure is 17, so we need to go down on our on our tidal volume, on our pressure to get the driving pressure below 15 centimeters of water. Of course, we do still do need to establish if driving pressure is a true driver of severity or just a marker of severity. And we do need to have randomized controlled trials exploring if a driving pressure guided strategy really do improve the outcomes of our patient. And that's why, well, in the end, we probably we need to move to platform trials where we can combine several factors because they are so much linked. Because what we also know, and that's a little bit related to the previous discussion about the PEEP, we have a PEEP phobia in the pediatric intensive care unit. So if we want to limit our driving pressure, we should not only look at the tidal volume, but we should also look at increasing our levels of PEEP to limit the driving pressure. But if you want to implement this at the bedside, and I think I would really recommend to do so, it's all about education. And as I said, experience in our team, we instructed the team, we instructed the bedside team, this is how you do it. And then we can measure the value uh, to, to titrate our, our ventilation. Martin, that's so helpful. Could I take you through the actual steps of um, measuring it? In our world, as you well know, most patients are ventilated, as you noted, with time cycle pressure, limited modes of ventilation. And so typically what I tell our therapists is, all right, if we're going to measure driving pressure accurately, and you noted this, I suggest to them, you got to flip to the volume control mode, hold inspiratory pressure, you know, inspiratory pressure hold, and wait for the decay from peak to plateau to eliminate the resistive component from the measurement, as you noted, and then measure plateau to peak. Is, is that the way you do it? We do an inspiratory hold in, in pressure-controlled ventilation. We do it manually. We do use volume-controlled ventilation, but mainly in the old, older children, so that we get inherently, we get the plateau pressure. I think there is some data, I think it's from another Yea, where he compared the plateau pressure when it was measured in a volume-controlled mode of ventilation and in a pressure-controlled mode of ventilation. And I think he found in that study a pretty good correlation, meaning that if you do it on pressure-controlled ventilation with a manual inspiratory hold, you get a pretty adequate reflection of what the plateau pressure is. Now, there are lots of technical issues because most ventilators, some differ in their hold and some will not allow you to do a hold if a patient breathes spontaneously. But the main message is it's in pressure controlled, you can get a really good estimate of plateau pressure. Martin, that's wonderful. One more time about that study you just cited. Yeah, it's the, it's the study from Nader Yeha's group and Yeha is spelled Y-E-H-Y-A, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2022, the March issue first author is Dr. Patel. And in that study, they looked at the levels of agreement in pressure control ventilation, zero flow. So the flow was really back to zero. Look at what the pressure then was. And then subsequently measured plateau pressure in volume controlled and included that if you are at zero flow in pressure controlled, you get a really good estimate of the actual plateau pressure, helping you to calculate driving pressure. That's very helpful. And now that you say that, I did hear Nader talk about that study at a recent meeting, and that's very helpful to know. One last question on this. How often do you measure driving pressure, let's say on a given day on a patient ill with PARDS? If a patient has moderate to severe PARDS, we try to do it at least once per nursing shift, so which is an eight-hour nursing shift. But if it's necessary to do it more, we, we do it more. It really depends on, on the severity of the patient. Could I take you yet to another topic? And this topic concerns the use of neuromuscular blockade, especially perhaps in relation to averting patient self-inflicted lung injury or so-called P-silly. And when you and I spoke last time, this is another topic that gets a lot of uh, recent discussion in the literature, but the discussion about how we 
measure it and monitor for it in practice is less frequently commented on. And again, PSILI, patient self-inflicted lung injury, is a situation where we've encouraged the role of spontaneous breathing in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure with the use of high-flow nasal cannula and or non-invasive ventilation, and appropriately so, uh, in many instances, being able to treat it without intubating the patient. But in those instances where the patient is breathing spontaneously, does have significantly low lung compliance in the setting of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, there can be very intense and large swings in inspiratory effort, leading to large swings in transpulmonary pressure and lung stress that you just identified, causing inflation with larger volumes than perhaps would be intended in controlled conditions. And it also leads to abnormal swings in transvascular pressure, leading to negative pressure pulmonary edema and uh, has negative effects on the diaphragm. So P. silly, um, as we discussed last time, is, is a real concern. I know we've seen it in our practice and in the adult literature, uh, they are especially keen to monitor it in situations where the PaO2, FiO2 ratio is uh, below 200 millimeters of mercury that they've identified that as a population at risk. But your thoughts on the use of neuromuscular blockade and conjunction with the PALIC-2 guidelines, and um, maybe with special reference towards your thoughts on patients with P-Silly or at risk for P-Silly. Yeah, as, as you rightfully say, P-Silly happens in our patients. We've seen it also. We measure the esophageal pressure swings routinely in, all our, in our patients. All patients get an esophageal catheter upon PQ admission. And we really see when they, are, when, they, when they show vigorous breathing, we really see those large transpulmonary pressure swings. And it happens in young children also. So it's really something that happens in, 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 our, in our patients. Now, originally everybody thought, okay, you have to let patients breathe spontaneously. We know it from physiology studies from the seventies, Alison Freeze, and it's good for ventilation perfusion distribution and for a more equal distribution of tidal volume. But it's, it's really clear that if you have quite bad lung disease, then probably it's not the way to go to keep on breathing spontaneously. And the enthusiasm for neuromuscular blockade was really high when the first adult trial came out, the Curacis trial from Claude Guerin in, in New England, where they observed that adults with moderate to severe ARDS, PF below 150, randomized neuromuscular blockade for 48 hours, had better outcomes. And then subsequently, this enthusiasm was dampened because the ROSE trial, which comes from America and Canada, tried to confirm the findings of the Curacis trial, and they didn't find any benefit of continuous neuromuscular blockade. In PEATS, we don't have these trials. We have some small observational studies finding improved oxygenation, but we don't have outcome trials. So it made a recommendation indeed tricky as to, okay, this is what we usually do in practice. If we cannot sedate the patient, then we're going to paralyze the patient. While I'm a big advocate for spontaneous breathing, we've really implemented in our unit, okay, if you have bad lung disease, you're not allowed to breathe spontaneous and we're going to use continuous neuromuscular blockade. And we use it for 48 hours and if necessary, we prolong its use because we've really seen the detrimental effects of the vigorous breathing and the patient self-inflicted lung injury. Now, what we do need to do in of course, we do need to do future studies if we can improve outcome. But in terms of monitoring, what we are not that good at is monitoring the depth of the neuromuscular blockade. Because there is one fascinating paper from the adults published a few years ago in the Blue Journal from Leo Hunks and his group, where they used partial neuromuscular blockade in patients who were breathing vigorously. And they titrated the doses of neuromuscular blockade to just take away those excessive respiratory efforts. So not completely paralyze the patient, but take away the excessive respiratory efforts, more or less, let's say, mimicking a little bit acquired respiratory muscle weakness. 
and that's maybe something that's fascinating to study in peach as well so but for the monitoring so we we try now to implement the train of four measurements so not using a routine dosage of of neuromuscular blockade but titrated to the left to the train of four level and where you use a stimulus on the uh, the ulnar nerve and see how many twitches there are i think it's some anesthesiologists among us they really know this technique because well of course the downside of using continuous neuromuscular blockade is the muscular weakness that we do see in our patients happening very on early on but right now i think the, the negative effects of the p silly are more important than the potential negative effects of having a patient on neuromuscular paralysis. I must say that's my personal view as well. I worry that we're not recognizing patients either at risk for PCLE or developing it. So that leads us to now perhaps the last topic, and we've already kind of touched on it, and that is how do you think about the use of non-invasive ventilation in a patient with evolving pediatric acute respiratory distress syndrome? And how do you think about its use in post-extubation of patients who have been treated for PARDS? That's also a very fascinating topic. My personal view is a bit, let's say first, it's an intervention that's very much cherished by us in the pediatric critical care community. And that's because all of us, we are doers. We want to do something. We, we, we are not really comfortable when we are just standing at the bedside and doing nothing. So I think my personal feeling is that there might be sometimes a little overuse of non-invasive ventilation, pre-intubation and post-intubation. The concept really makes sense. You say, okay, if I can support a patient without having to intubate the patient and with all the negative effects of intubation, that really makes sense. But I think we still clearly need to identify, okay, this patient group is going to benefit you really have to train your team. You really have to make sure that you have all the equipment available and you really have to be comfortable with applying NIV to become successful. And my take would be, if you don't have that much experience, then don't do it. Because there is a lot of issues with, of course, fitting the mask, leakage, asynchronies, insufficient support, making the patient become more dyspneic than you're over the hill. So there are lots of issues that we still need to uh, elucidate before we can firmly establish a good role for non-invasive ventilation. And I think the same applies to post-extubation. Again, we are doers, so we want to do something. And I think for sure in a group of patients, it will be beneficial post-extubation, but I'm also convinced that in a substantial group, patients post-extubation don't need any kind of support. And of course, now we have the first ABC trial, which is the high flow comparing with nasal CPAP pre and post intubation and show non-inferiority of high-flow nasal cannula. But then again, the trial doesn't address the issue, do we really need to use it in all our patients? And what Pellick really states is you could consider it, so it's not really a very strict recommendation. Depends on where you are, what equipment you have, et cetera, available. But one of the most important notes from the Pellick too, again, is if you are going to use it, make sure that you monitor your patient very closely and do not push the time limit. So if your patient doesn't improve within a few hours, then go for the next step and escalate because otherwise the patient will uh, experience negative effects of the non-invasive ventilation. I think that's really well put forward in the PALIC2 recommendations. Well, I, I must say that your comments echo with our concerns in Boston, and that is that it's very seductive to use non-invasive ventilation in the evolving acute lung injury patient. And we always say, okay, we're going to use a time-limited trial so that we don't go too far. But despite doing a time-limited trial, the next thing you hear is, well, they're I think we've captured them. And now the next thing you know, they're on non-invasive much longer than we wanted. And then you're entering the territory of concern for P. silly, as you noted. I must say on the um, extubation side, my personal belief 
For patients who've accumulated a great deal of extravascular lung water or are up on their total body water, I like utilizing non-invasive ventilation post-extubation for a period of time for the benefit of the transpulmonary pressure gradient on the ventricles and the LV in particular, and in a way to help maximize diuresis without having to rely completely on diuretics. I do lean a little bit that way, I'll have to confess. I agree with you. That's for example, but then you have it. That's a specific indication for which you use it. And for example, if we have patient post-cardiac surgery where we think, well, the left ventricle might be a little bit, function might be a little bit impaired, we put them preemptively on nasal CPAP or, or, or full thought mass CPAP. And I think those are right indications, but we also must acknowledge there is use that people may think beforehand, well, probably this patient would be too weak. Let's start it anyway. And I think, well, as said earlier, it would really help if we can find some prediction rule or find some markers, whatever, clinical variables or whatever to help us guide the decision-making when to use post-extubation NIV or not. Plus, and, and that's a topic that we really didn't address that much, but it, the discussion is also a little bit troubled because we call everything non-invasive ventilation. And there is a difference between CPAP and bilevel non-invasive ventilation. And that's something that troubles the discussion. And But we really need to understand the two types of non-invasive that we are applying. Well, Martin, that has just been a terrific walkthrough of how you implement the PALIP2 guidelines at the bedside. And again, for our listeners, PALIP2 guidelines appeared in the February 2023 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine entitled The Executive Summary of the Second International Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Martin Kniber, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at the Beatrix Children's Hospital, Groningen, the Netherlands, President of ASMIC European Society of Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care, I thank you again for appearing on the Open Pediatrics podcast. On behalf of colleagues around the world, we salute all of your work and research on pediatric mechanical ventilation in the setting of especially acute lung injury. We all learn from you. I look forward to seeing you at the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive Care and Critical Care World Congress in Cancun on June 1st and 5th of this year, 2024. And I also look forward to seeing you in Rome the following week, June 11th through 14th, for the annual meeting of the European Society of Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care. So thank you for being with us again today. Thank you very much. Uh, and it was a great honor for being with you. Thank you very much. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. Thank you.